Hey, welcome back. If you're joining us for the first time, we're in a series called Receive, and there are five sessions. This is session two, and uh, we're going to talk about men being receivers. That's what we covered last time, but we're going to talk about how do we receive in this session. We talked about men are on a journey. Uh, we've been blitzed. We're missing the vision for manhood, and we're missing our identity. That's what we covered last week, and now we're jumping into how do we receive our identity? How do we receive the vision? How do we receive the power and the ability, minute to minute, to live manhood? The answer is going to be Jesus. This is session two of Receive. Uh, well, first we'll look at the ultimate man, how we find our identity, and then how we, can we be refathered so that we can start receiving from Abba Father minute to minute all the time. I'm uh, the oldest of four kids, and I have a little brother, Jimmy. He's 12 years younger than me. Uh, Jimmy was a quarterback like me. He looked up to me as his older brother that had gone on as a free agent to, to play for the Los Angeles Rams. And uh, when Jimmy was 12 and I was, I think, 24, going into my third season in the NFL, uh, my mom had read an article um, in Sports Illustrated and it was predicting that the Rams might draft this really great quarterback, All-American, Boomer Esiason, out of the University of Maryland. And my mom lived in Bethesda with my dad and my family, and my little brother was there. And mom was on the phone in D.C. I was in California um, going into my third year, quite insecure, always on the bubble to make the team. And uh, she was saying, oh, Jeff, I, I read in Sports Illustrated that the Rams might draft Boomer Esiason. And then she realized she wasn't exactly encouraging her uh, – third-year uh, son, and so she said, but, but don't worry, you can beat him out, and neither of us realized it, but 12-year-old Jimmy, my little brother, was on the phone, and he said, no way, Mom, Boomer's good. <laughs> uh, I've had a lot of uh, bubble-bursting moments like that to add to the humility that I've needed, but we wonder, am I good? Do I measure up? Do I have what it takes? Uh, am I a real man? Am I a good man? We want to look at the essential man and the essence of what is it to be a man. And to do so, let's go to the source, the greatest man that ever lived, Jesus, the ideal man. Is there one? Is there a timeless universal model? Is there an essence of it? Um, a man for all seasons, for all eras, for all cultures, uh, for all times? Well, there is. And I mentioned that it is Jesus. He is our perfect model. In the spring of 2020, um, COVID was just starting to shut down everyone's travel. And I'm a public speaker. I travel and do conferences and stuff. And uh, one day I got a call and my next big trip the next day got canceled. And within a week, six of my trips got canceled and my whole schedule for the year was done. And it looked like I'd be staying home. And I got the opportunity to plug back into my patient mornings, sitting with God in the Word of God. And I had this great idea given to me by my friend, uh, Ed Tandy McGlasson, who at age 40, having been raised by a Navy performance-driven driving dad that helped Ed go into the NFL, and then he became a pastor and was always achieving and doing great, um, Ed realized that he'd lived a performance model of his faith and that it wasn't working well with his wife or his daughters. And he asked God to refather him, to change his heart so that he could experience God's presence and be more effective with his wife and his daughters. And in asking God to refather him, he started reading the Bible as a, as a son, 
not as a Christian or not as a pastor. Uh, so I did that. I took the chance because of this blitz of COVID and being home to say, okay, God, I want to be refathered. I had a great dad, an encouraging dad, a big dad, a dad I compared my to, myself to uh, and in a way where I didn't always measure up and I felt some insecurity about not you know, running for president by age 50 like he was or being a most valuable player in the uh, AFL like he was or winning championships as a quarterback. Um, but he encouraged, he loved, he hugged, and he said, your day's going to come. But you know what? He wasn't a perfect dad. He had his flaws, and I still was insecure. And so I said, God, I want to be refathered. And in reading through the scriptures, I saw 221 instances, I highlighted them all, of Jesus demonstrating his manhood. And I was really looking at him kind of as a, as a man. Um, I want to take us and drop in on one of those days of Jesus's life, okay? Um, this is found uh, in every single one of the gospels. Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 9, John 6, all tell the same story, which is the only one told in all the Gospels. It's the feeding of the 5,000 men. And there were other women and children there, so it was more than 5,000. Um, so I'm just going to kind of tell the story. You can op open up your scripture to one of those if you want to find uh, the feeding of the 5,000. But it shows Jesus' manhood, the way he lived it, the way he received it. And I want us to kind of pick up some of his lessons from him. So this is right after John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, had been beheaded. So there was some emotional pain, a blitz, a loss in his life. He had just trained his disciples and kind of sent them out two by two, and they'd gone on some mission trips, one of the first efforts where they went off on their own away from him after he'd started training them. And they'd been preaching. They'd been healing. They'd been seeing lives change. They'd seen miracles. And they were tired, but excited. And they came back and started telling the stories. Uh, but they really needed some rest. And Jesus needed some rest. So he said, come on, I want to bring you away. So he brought his guys to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, kind of a giant lake. Um, and they were going to rest and recharge alone instead of having the crowds with them all the time. But it didn't turn out that way because the crowds followed him around the lake and thousands showed up just as they were supposed to start their relaxing uh, day of recharging. But Jesus wasn't phased. Um, he rolled with the punches. He accepted whatever was coming his way. And he spent the whole day teaching them, caring for them, touching them, healing them, performing miracles, pouring everything he had into serving these people because he had compassion and he cared and he was a man of action. But I'm sure the Father was guiding him as he did all this and he was listening to the Father. Uh, and then late in the day, one of his guys, um, it was uh, Peter, said, these people are hungry. It would take like a year's salary to feed them. And some of the disciples were saying, send them home, send them home. They need to go dinner. And uh, Jesus said, no, we should feed them. And Philip says, we don't have the money. And then Andrew says, well, here's a boy. He's got two, two fish and five little loaves of bread. But what is that? That can hardly, you know, feed a couple people, much less, you know, these thousands. So Jesus, again, takes all this in. He says, no, we're going to feed him. You're going to feed him. And you can just sense him kind of listening to his father. And then he looks up and he says, Father, thank you for this food. I pray it's blessings and your blessing upon the food and upon these people. And then he says, okay, guys, let's feed him. Uh, split these people up into groups of 
and he's probably listening to the Father, split them into little communities of 50. And I want you to feed him. So he got these guys involved. So he said, all 12 of you, I want you to take some of the bread and some of the fish and, and start delivering it to them. Use some baskets. Well, that seems crazy because there's only a little bit of food. But after praying, he gets them going. They set the people in groups of 50 and they start walking around and feeding everyone. And they come back miraculously with, I think, 12 baskets of extra food. And then they start kind of going crazy over this miracle and want Jesus you know, to get this glory and to hang out with him. And he says, no, 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 you guys get in the, in the boat and go back across the lake. I'm, I need to go up into the hills to be with my father. I need to listen to my father. I need to connect to my father. I need to be with my father. I need to receive some more from my father, even though I think he'd been continually receiving the game plan from his father on how to do this amazing feeding of 5,000. Jesus received and then passed on what the father gave him, and it was miraculous. And he was teaching his men to do it that way. Here are some of the traits that I see in Jesus in this story. Jesus the man, first and foremost, he was a son. He was dependent on his father. He had friends and he worked through friendship and that was important to him. Remember the whole thing started by him trying to care for his friends. He was humble and valued the people. He wasn't above them. He was compassionate, he was empathetic he wanted to make a difference. He could feel what they were going through. He was grateful to his father. He said, thank you for the food. He was optimistic that we can turn a little into a lot. And he was very resourceful. Let's get 12 baskets, set them in groups of 50. Let's start feeding them. Jesus was strong for others' benefit. This is manliness. Jesus was missional. He had a purpose. He was aiming to accomplish things that glorified God and made the world a better place. Jesus wasn't phased by change, by challenges, by needs. I imagine Jesus would have been an awesome quarterback. Bring on the blitz. Come on. Patrick Mahomes. Yeah, blitz me. I want, I want no free safety. I want man-to-man -man coverage. I don't mind if I'm hit. Jesus was unfazed by the worst things that could happen and by changes of the plan. He trained his men and he built community. He built a team. Jesus initiated, but he was also responsive. He wasn't a bully. Jesus was sacrificing. He sacrificed his time all day long to serve when he'd wanted to be resting. He sacrificed sleep to spend the night listening to his father and recharging to continue his mission in dependence. Jesus was decisive and bold as a leader. But he didn't do it alone. He connected to the father so he could protect others and provide for them by receiving the game plan and the provision from the Father. I want you to write that in. Write down at the bottom of the list where it says decisive and bold leader. Write connect, protect, and provide. Great blueprint for manhood. Connect to the Father, protect the interests of others, and provide to make things better. So the vision for man, a good man, a real man, for masculinity and manhood is simply Jesus. Sonship of the Father fuels compassion, caring, strength, and courage. 
doesn't matter what the crowd says. You have a single audience, and you've got the power of God to go forward. You can do the right thing. And this sonship fuels you living for the greatest cause, a bigger cause, the eternal cause, to rescue, to reconcile, and to provide real life. That's what Jesus did. That's what we need to be doing as men, as husbands, as dads, as workers, as leaders, whether we're a boss or an employee. Our identity is not something that we scratch and claw and earn. It's something we receive. I talked about that fan, fan letter I got uh, from the guy that was actually a fan of Joe Montana's uh, that said, I know when you're benched and he comes back, you'll feel shoveled off to the side. Um, I was benched by the Niners. I actually was traded by the Niners after having my best season ever. On my eighth year, I was benched by the Seahawks when I was a good quarterback and supposedly uh, likely to become the starter, but I went from first to third string. I had my best stretch of playing in my last season of football, signed a great contract with Philadelphia Eagles, and in year 12, I was the last guy cut, and I didn't get a cent nor ever step on the field again. My career was over. Did I lose my identity in those benchings, in those trades, in getting cut? I'll admit, I didn't feel good about it. My faith isn't absolutely perfect. I had some emotional moments. But you know what? My identity wasn't shaken. I knew who I was. I was a son of the king, a son of a perfect father. Um, that didn't change. That was my anchor. That was my rock. I, I would keep living from that, not trying to earn my identity. We anchor our lives in relationship, not performance. And we anchor it in relationship with the designer of us, God, the creator. There's two most important things. Many people have said this. Two most important things about you. But I don't think we live with a realization of these two most important things. These things will influence the way you live. They will shape your destiny. Number one, what is your view of God? Is it accurate or not? Number two, your view of yourself. Is it accurate or not? The only way it can be accurate is if you let the accurate one, the objective one, the true one, the infinite one, the smart one, God, define A, who he is, and B, who you are. God describes in the Bible who he is. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. He's one. He's the creator. He's almighty. He's eternal. He's before and after, the alpha and the omega. He's always true. He's grace and truth. He's love. He's the eternal king. He's the better father than we could ever imagine. There's a very good illustration of the father given by Jesus. It's in Luke chapter 15 the story of the prodigal son and the prodigious father and the grumpy, comparative, judgmental older brother. And, and Jesus paints the picture of a father whose sons both left him, one through legalistic pride and comparative and trying to earn everything as if he's the one that invented the farm and the ranch that the dad had. And the other one who said, hey, I just want to take the benefits and run and live my wild life. I don't want any authority in my life. Uh, that's the one we know who ended up in the pigsty. But he came home, finally humbled, and the dad had been standing on the porch looking for him, not groveling, but praying, yearning, 
ready to extend his arms and welcome him back. This is the father of grace. This is the forgiving father. This is the generous father. He, he hugs him. He celebrates him. He gives him a ring, new pair of sandals, a robe. He, he cooks up a barbecue with a fatted calf, invites the older brother to come. The older brother says, no, I'm not going to come. Uh, this isn't fair. So he leaves the father his own way. But this father is gracious to him and says, son, everything I've always had has been yours as well. Come celebrate. Your, your brother was lost. He was dead. Now, now he's found. He's alive. God is like that. That's the father you have. So that's an accurate view of God. The second thing we need is accurate view of ourselves. And again, this is from the source, not from us, not according to society, some boss or some measurements or some sales numbers or any image. The perfect mind, God, defines you. Here's three essentials that you need to be clear on. So do I. I mean, I'm speaking to myself and all this stuff. I'm learning these things. Remember, I told you that a lot of this learning came in 2020 when I started saying, God, refather me. I want to read the Bible and have you speak to me. I don't want to invent things myself. Here are three essentials to be clear on to know who you are. Number one, your father is perfect. And in Romans 5.8, it says he demonstrated and proved his love for you. He valued you so much that Christ died for you while you were still a sinner. So that's how valuable you are to your perfect father. Number two, he adopts you as his son. He adopts you as his son. If you've received Christ, you're an adopted son. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Christ, who never ever sinned, to be the punishment for sin, so that those of us who sin could be made right with God, could be made into the righteousness of God. That's just a remarkable statement, that he sees us like Christ when we still live like rascals, but he's seeing the future you because he's crediting you with the righteousness of Christ. You're adopted, and he celebrates you, and he loves you because of what Christ has done for you. Ephesians 1.5 says, In love, God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. So you got to know that about yourself. You're a son that's adopted. And then third, you got to know that you have a best owner, and it's not you. <laughs> the best owner is perfect. He is not a curmudgeon. He's not capricious. He is generous. His will is better than yours. He invented fun. He invented pleasure. He invented success and thriving. Trust him as the best owner of your life. 1 Corinthians 6.20 these are all worth going through and studying on your own. Let God speak to you through them. You were bought with a price, purchased by God with the precious blood of Jesus, and you were made his own possession. So then, because he bought you with this high price, honor and glorify God with your body. And that's going to include your mind and your thoughts and your attitudes and your bank account and your relationships, everything in your life, your time. There's an awesome story in the Old Testament, uh, a true story about a guy named Gideon. And he received his identity when he wasn't yet confident about who he was. He was in a wine press. He was hiding. Uh, there was a group of enemies, the Midianites, who would keep attacking anytime they came out in, in the open to reap their um, farm products and stuff. And he was threshing some wheat in a wine press, hiding. This is found in Judges uh, chapter 6. And uh, God came to Gideon in the form of an angel, the angel of the Lord, and said to him, 
before he was courageous, before he was valiant, before he was a warrior, before he was a leading general. He said, O Gideon, the Lord is with you. Mighty warrior, mighty man of valor. That is the Gideon principle, speaking into someone their identity, their character, and their destiny before it's even happening. But to God, that's easy to do because God's outside of time and space. He sees who you'll be in the future, the to be, not just the as is. And if you've accepted Jesus Christ, been born again, had the Holy Spirit put in you, become part of a team, the body of Christ, hopefully with a couple of real deep, trusted, close friends, you're on the transformation conforming to Christ journey, but God's giving you credit for that already. The righteousness of Christ, he already sees that and he credits you and he smiles, he celebrates you, he wants to throw a party. That is the Gideon principle. It's one of the things we dads and grandpas and leaders need to do for those that we lead. Remember the little boy, uh, Matt, on the football team that was called Doofus by his dad or stepdad or whoever tried to pick him up? Well, here's a contrasting story. Um, I was mentored by a guy that was the chairman of my board for a while. He was a former Navy fighter pilot, and uh, then he built homes. Um, his name is Don Wallace, and he told stories to my sons when they would turn 18 at these Welcome to Manhood trips that I put together to usher them into manhood. Uh, we did them around skiing and, and meals. It was a blast. But Don told stories, um, and one of them was about a guy named Chuck. Tatted up pretty heavily, bearded dude, very thick, muscular, kind of a brawler. Uh, didn't have a great track record with women uh, or his ethics or holding his alcohol in a great way. Uh, had an anger uh, challenge, but he was a great carpenter. He was working for Don in his home building company. And Don developed him, put him in charge, made him the foreman of a home and said, hey, I'd like you to lead building this multi-million dollar home in the islands, uh, the San Juan Islands of, of the Northwest. And uh, Chuck built the home, led the team, did it great, came in on time, came in on budget. Don toured the home with him at the end and congratulated him on all the quality and everything that he saw, told him he was proud of him, and that had to feel good to Chuck. But he was standing on the front porch, and what really uh, blew uh, Chuck away is Don looked up at this big burly guy, put his hand out, shook it, and he said, Chuck, and then he took his hand from his hand and put it up on Chuck's shoulders. He said, Chuck, you're a good man. And this big 230-pound burly guy started to bawl and kind of heave as he was crying. And Don put his arms around him and gave him a dad's hug. Don had just practiced the Gideon principle with a guy who wasn't necessarily a good guy yet. He wasn't living up to all those character traits. But Don saw the potential in him, and he validated his worth to begin with. You need to see God saying that to you. You're a good man. Because of Jesus, because I've adopted you, because I give you his righteousness and credit for it, you're a good man. Great things are on the horizon. Judges 6.12, the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Man, hold on to that. God says that about you. Because of Jesus, not because of your own merit. Galatians 4, 6 and 7. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Daddy, Father. So you're no longer a slave or a servant, but a son and an heir through God. 
That is who you are. Live from that identity. You can't earn it. It's got to be received. And we'd mentioned in the last session, Genesis 1.27, it all goes back to you and I were created in the image of God. We are image bearers, not image makers. We don't have to create our own image. God's given it to us. We bear the image of God in his likeness. So who you are and the life you live are not a self-improvement project. It's not on you. Who you are and the life you live is a gift from the Heavenly Father. And that's what we need to start figuring out, how to live from that. We're made in God's image and valuable, but we're disconnected and do it on our own way, like Adam and Eve, which led to all the trouble. We're damaged. We're diverted from the pure path. But he doesn't hold us against that against us because Christ forgave it. As long as we admit it and get real, authentic, honest, I'm broken. I have mistakes. I have some pride. I have some excessive quest for significance. I uh, like the female body too much and look at others other than just my wife. Um, I sometimes want to get angry if things don't go my way. I'm more prickly with my wife than I am with other people. I'm imperfect. I can admit it because I know that he loves me and accepts me already. And I won't heal from any of that stuff unless I get it out on the table with a couple close trusted friends, maybe with a therapist. We need to confess our sins and struggles to one another and be real. It's not a self-improvement project. It's a get real and say, God, I need help. And he will. So I'm asking you about this. Are you receiving your identity? Or are you still trying to earn it? Are you performing? Are you acting? Do you find yourself pretending? Here's kind of a clue to answering that question. How much are you listening to God, like all during the day? How much are you hearing from him? Are you learning things from God? Are you adjusting and changing what you do or what you would have done because you're hearing from him? If those things aren't happening, then you're running your life your own way and you're the one in charge of your identity and you're not receiving it from him. And I'm sure you're frustrated and stuck. And I've been there before. Here's a little chart, kind of a way to measure. As you look at this, ask the question, who owns me? Who owns my life? Down at the bottom, is it me? 0% belonging to God? Or am I moving up that arrow and trying to increasingly give God full ownership of my life every day? 100%. When we're in the hands of the best owner, everything is going to be done better because he is a better owner and a lot more competent than us at running the game plan. Soren Kierkegaard had a great quote that I think we can use from this day forward if you're serious about receiving your identity and letting God be the owner. Now, with God's help, I shall become myself. The real you, who you were meant to be, will come when you let God take over. And with his help, by receiving from him, he'll play out the identity, the manhood, the life that you were meant to live. I want to jump into a section, and I have a chapter in the book, Receive, called Be Refathered. And again, I got the idea from my friend Ed Tandy McGlasson, uh, who played football, and then I practiced it in the 2020 COVID shutdown year. Um, we're all looking for approval. Okay, we're also asking these questions. Uh, first, we want 
approval from our dad. And it's like we're saying, Dad, am I a man? Am I a good man? Do I have what it takes? Do I measure up? John Eldridge does a great job of putting these questions that men ask out on the table and helping us realize God is the only one to answer those. And he answers them well, which is what the Receive Principle and the Gideon Principle is all about. You may have had a dad like uh, Matt, whose dad called him doofus. Maybe a hard-driving, performance-driven, never-good-enough dad like Ed, this Navy dad that he had. Uh, my buddy Steve Largent, he had a dad that divorced his mom and left the family when Steve was six years old. You might have had a dad like that. Um, no matter the dad you had or have, you have a perfect father. And he wants to fill all the gaps left by your imperfect dad and even let you use that story of coming from a broken home, a divorce, a critical dad, a hard-driving, performance-driven dad, a passive dad, an absent dad, or maybe a good dad, but not the very best dad. He wants to use all those stories to reshape your identity, to build your security in him, to let you go help other guys with their stories. And he wants to refather you, but you got to ask him and be serious about it. It's almost a reset. It's a reset in your relationship with the father, the way you look at him, the way you look at yourself. He's a dad. I'm a son. I'm not going to read this book, the Bible, as a Christian. I'm not going to go listen to a sermon or a podcast and just, hey, I want to get some good Christian information. No, I'm going to ask God, what do you want to say to me? I want to hear from you. That's being refathered. I'm going to ask God questions. I did this in my journal. I wrote questions. God, tell me what I'm thinking that's not accurate. I read a book by Dave Patty that was super helpful, and I'll get into that in a minute, that un un uncovered some of the lies I'd be been believing. God wants to rewrite the script. Romans 8.37 is an encouragement. It says, in all these things we face, every trial, every blitz, every failure, every addiction, every trap you get into, every wound, in all these things, we are more than conquerors and we gain an overwhelming victory through Christ who loved us so much that he died for us. God uses negatives to create positives if we will surrender to him and gain his purpose, more important than our little purpose. I have a really good friend named Marvin Charles in Seattle. Um, Marvin didn't have a dad, didn't have a mom, didn't know them. He was sexually molested. Uh, when he was in elementary school. He was sexualized at a very young age. He went to the street life and lived it successfully, prolifically, uh, on the edge for quite a few years. But prison and some drug rehab uh, kind of put a stop to things for a while, and he found Jesus, or let's say Jesus found him, and he was born again. He confessed that he didn't know the way to go, and he wanted God's forgiveness and healing and presence in his life, he started changing. Marvin said he was all in. He even became an ordained pastor uh, in the inner city of Seattle. But he said for about 10 years, he kind of felt a little bit bound up following the patterns of some of the pastors and churches who kind of presented an ideal image of Christianity, but not the honest, raw struggles and the real issues. And Marvin thought, man, you got to be more real than this, I think. But he met these two white guys, he calls them, uh, Art and Connie, and I know them. Uh, and they became his friends, two business guys. And uh, 
they started mentoring and hanging out with him and befriend him. And one day, uh, one of the guys put his hands on Marvin in his home. And he said, Marvin, you're my beloved son. I am so pleased in you. I take delight in you. You're a good man. I pray God's favor and blessing on you. Marvin was blown away. He said, what, 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 what was that? What just happened? What did you just do? He said, I just prayed the Father's blessing over you. This is what God the Father has done and says about you. And Marvin said, that's amazing. I love that. Just a minute. And he ran in the other room and he got his teenage sons. And he immediately said, hey, coach me how to do that for them. And he, he prayed a blessing like that over his sons, my beloved sons, and whom, whom I take delight. I love you unconditionally. God bless them. Marvin said that that was the trigger point of the transformation of his life and starting to live as a beloved son of the father. He said it was actually his transition to real manhood. And it just accelerated all the conforming to Christ that God intended. In Marvin's life, he has mentored over 4,000 dads that were disconnected from their kids, taught them the ways of Jesus, the ways of fatherhood. Many of them gotten married that weren't even ever thinking about marriage. Marvin has made a huge difference in thousands of lives and children's lives because he found out what it was to be a real man when he accepted and received the Father's view of him through the blessing of another man. Abba has a pursuit. God is chasing us down. He's saying to us, son, are you ready? Are you ready to become who you were born to be? And if you say yes, then he's saying, well, we can finish this thing together. No matter where you've been, we can finish this thing together. You as my son, I as your father, you receiving from me, I'll guide you. The big question here is, how? Well, I'm going to say, ask God. Ask Abba. Seek his blessing. Find a mentor. Ask God questions. Say, re-father me. Start reading and praying in the scriptures as a son, saying, Father, what do you want to say to me? Write down the stuff that he says to you in a journal or on your phone or wherever you want to. Talk about it with a best friend or two. And if you don't have a best friend, develop one, someone you're honest and open and consistent with. We'll talk about that more in one of the following sessions. James 1.17 it says that every good thing is given and every perfect gift is from above, from the Father. The receive principle is that God is a good giver and we are receivers. Remember, we're not the originators of where this football came from. We didn't invent it. We didn't manufacture it. We're not just passers. You can't pass until you receive. If you're a receiver, you're not going anywhere unless you receive the ball. That's what we need from the Father our identity, our vision for manhood, and our marching orders, and the power to live every single minute. Here's the receive principle. Um, Steve Largent I mentioned already. Um, he was Hall of Fame, hardest worker possible, great friend and teammate on the Seahawks, a guy that loved God deeply. And Jerry Rice, Hall of Fame, outrageous, talented, hardworking receiver for the Niners. Those guys when a ball came to them, they didn't just catch it and then look downfield and start running. Because when you do that, the ball gets knocked out of your hands by some other defender. They received the ball and tucked it in, protected it. Their eyes had been totally on it on the way in. Steve used to look at the tip of the ball 
He focused that intently on accurately receiving, and they tuck it away and cover both tips and protect it with their life. And then they go run after catch, okay? We men are receivers, and then that makes us initiators of love, of leadership, of courage. But even those things we initiate, we receive from the Father. The receive principle is depend 100% on God, receive 100% from God, and give whatever he tells you to give to others. Honesty, kindness, encouragement, authenticity, truth, compassion, generosity. Let's take a look at how Jesus was fathered, okay? This will guide us. In Luke 3.22, this is right after Jesus got baptized by John, his cousin, the Holy Spirit came down and descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my son, my beloved son. In you I am well pleased and delighted. Do you hear the Father's blessing? Luke 9.35 and 17.5 of Matthew this is when Jesus went up with Peter, James, and John, his close, closest three friends, to the Mount of Transfiguration. He included them in this special experience. And again, the Father said, this is my son, my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. But he added something. He said, this is my chosen one. Listen to him. And then in 2 Corinthians 5.21, this is what ties it to you and me. God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Other translations of the Bible say, so that we could be made into the righteousness of God. God actually sees you as righteous when you receive Christ, gives you credit for that, and converts you into that because, again, he's outside of time and space. So it's real to him. We just haven't arrived at living fully righteously. But if we understood it, we would start living into it from that identity. That COVID blitz, that refathering experience that I went through set me up, and I actually uh, found a book called Father God Daring to Draw Near by Dave Patty, Eastern European missionary. He'd been discipling people that hadn't seen warm, loving, affirming, gentle fatherhood, and so he thought he needed to re-explain to them that Father God is a good term, not a bad term. And he wrote a really good book, and it helped me a lot because it showed us that um, God fills our hearts with certain gifts that we need and we can't fully get from our dad or from any human achievement or performance, um, any accomplishments. There, it's like your heart has four quadrants. Take a look at this. Um, and God wants to give you gifts in each of those quadrants to fill you up. It's part of the Gideon principle of receiving your identity and your fullness from him. What does God give us? Here's how Dave Patty laid it out, and these align perfectly with the blessing in the river and on the Mount of Transfiguration that Jesus had. Number one, identity. This is my son. Your identity, God gives you, is his son. He adopts you. Number two, my beloved son. I love you unconditionally. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Jesus paid the price, and God can love you unconditionally. He loves you. He smiles on you. Most men think, yeah, God loves me, but I don't think he likes me. <laughs> you got to get over that and get so honest that he can fix the junk in you, but know that he loves you despite that junk. He's forgiven it on the cross. The next quadrant is, I take delight and pleasure in you. He does. He invented you, and he doesn't make junk. 
And after saving you through Jesus and knowing who you'll be in eternity, he delights in you. He takes pleasure in you. You got to see his smile. That's his gift. And the last one is place. Your belonging. Your purpose. Your meaning. Remember what God said about Jesus on the mountain? He said, he's my chosen one. The authority. The solution. Listen to him. When I said who I was, I said, I'm a son of God. I'm designed well by God, but I'm deeply flawed by me. But I'm loved unconditionally. And I've been made into a citizen of heaven and an ambassador for Jesus Christ with a mission of reconciliation and a message of reconciliation. I'm an ambassador because God gave me that. That's my place. That's my, I belong in his team. I belong in the kingdom. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm in his family. And I have a mission and a purpose if it's just to love my wife well, that's enough. If it's to love my kids or apologize and rebuild a relationship, that's enough. But I think he'll take it further than that. Colossians says, whatever you do, wherever you go, whether you eat and drink, do it all to the glory of God. Colossians 3.23, do everything you do heartily to the best of your excellence and ability, depending on God. Whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord, for it's the Lord Jesus Christ that you serve. You have a single audience, which ought to call out, call out our best. I had a phenomenal blessing from my dad, both the way he raised me, and then I asked him to pray a blessing over me when he had cancer, 73 years old. Um, I wasn't going to see him again. I'd been traveling back every month to visit him uh, in D.C. And uh, I said, Dad, I'm leaving tomorrow. Will you pray a blessing on me? And my Dad, who was down about 60 pounds, lost all his hair, melanoma cancer, had eaten him up. He knew he was on his way to heaven to be with the Lord, and he was at peace. I'd been reading scriptures to him, and I said, Dad, pray for me. And he, laying on his bed, he put his left hand on my right forearm as I lay there next to him, and he said, Dear God, help Jeff remember his talent. Help him remember the force for good he is in this world. And help us both remember the only thing that matters is thy will be done. Amen. Other than a, I love you on the phone, those were the last words I ever heard from my dad. He affirmed my identity, kind of the way he saw it was my strengths, my talents. He affirmed my mission, the force for good I can be in this world, make a difference, improve things. And then he took the pressure off me and he said, but the only thing that matters is thy will be done. So I knew dad loved me. I knew he was blessing me with God's love. He was reminding me of my identity as an encourager, as a vision caster, as a leader, and making a difference for good in the world. But then he said, it's not up to you, Jeff. It's up to the Father, and we want his will to be done. Despite that awesome blessing, when I read the book by Dave Patty and he asked me these three questions, I found some really fundamental flaws in my operating system, some false narratives that I've been living on. And I'd like you to write these down. Uh, they're there in the, in the sheet. And ask God, what's, what, are, what are the answers to these questions for me? So Dave said, hey, try and figure out, with God's help, what is the lie? What is the idol and what is the sin that you've adopted in your life because of a false narrative or a lie? For me, it came quickly. My lie 
was that the present version of Jeff wasn't enough. It was always going to be better in the future. My idol was future version of Jeff. I'll be a starter next year. We'll make the playoffs. Someday I'll win a Super Bowl. I'll be as good a speaker as my dad. I'll be popular. Whatever it was, it was future version was better. And do you sense the comparison in there? And then the sin that I adopted because of this lie and because of this idol was discontentment. I was not as grateful as I should be. I was always kind of questing for more significance, more success. Uh, and you know what? Since discovering those, I've been set free so significantly from those. I feel so much more secure that whatever God wants is good. It doesn't need to be measured. I don't need to impress anyone or perform. Uh, so I'm making some progress as I'm on this journey of being refathered. And I think God's got some amazing progress for you if you sincerely ask him to refather you and help you answer these questions. Uh, over there on the one that says my lie, it may be this, that God is saying that you're not good enough. That's a lie. Obviously, you're a sinner and can't get to heaven without him. So in that sense, you're not good enough. But with Christ in you, you're, he made you, you're good. He loves you. You're a beloved son. Number two, your idol may be you want things to go your way. You want your version of a good life. You think you can design a better life than God, so you're a little afraid of giving him total control. And that's Satan fooling us. And our desires and our way becomes our idol. And maybe the sin you fall into is disbelief that God is really as good as he is, and therefore disconnection to kind of do things your own way and only go to God in a crisis or in a pinch for some help. All right, let's look at Jesus straight on and intensely. Jesus continually received from his Father. He received his assignment, which was his work and his words. Whatever he was going to do, whatever he was going to say, it came to him from his Father. His guidance, his strength, his strategy, his mission, he got it all from the Father, and he did it by depending on the Father. John 5, 17 through 20 says some amazing things. Jesus says, My Father is always working, and so am I. I tell you the truth. The Son, listen to this. This is Jesus Christ, Almighty God. He was there at creation. He had a role in it. He holds everything together. He's the eternal King. Jesus says this about himself. The Son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he's doing, and the Son can't wait to be a part of doing that work of the Father. Jesus made himself humble and dependent, so he only did what he received. I am incredibly flawed compared to Jesus. You too, I imagine. Why in the world are we not dependent on the Father like Jesus? If he needed it, and this was the way for him, this should be the way for us. Now, it starts with an attitude of dependence, but you need to connect to listen to the Father and be guided from Him. Check this out. I'm going to go through this fast, but Jesus connected to His Father to receive. Luke 2, He said, I had to be in my Father's house. That's when He was like 12 or 13 years old and His parents couldn't find Him. He was with the, uh, the teachers of, of the Bible in the synagogue. Mark 1, 35 very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up. He left the house. He went off to a solitary place where he prayed. He was with his father. Luke, at daybreak, Jesus went out to an isolated place. Jesus often withdrew alone 
to be with his father and pray. Matthew 14. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted, this is after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus insisted his disciples get back into the boat, go to the other side, while he went up, excuse me, he sent the people home. And after sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell and Jesus was there alone with his father, receiving, connecting, depending, listening, and hearing from his father, getting filled up. Luke 6, Jesus went off to the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer and dialogue with God. When daylight came, he then chose the disciples and named them apostles. So Jesus had a big day coming. What did he do the night before? Did he sleep and get a bunch of rest? No, he trusted God to take care of his body. He spent the night in prayer and let God download everything he needed to guide him to choose the men that would change the world as they followed him, sacrificed their lives, and lived in friendship that went out kind of in twos, pairs of two to change the world. Friendship was big in Jesus' way. But he prayed all night before getting his vision of who to choose. Luke uh, 9, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. He went up to the mountain to pray. This is the transfiguration. Again, Jesus got away with the Father. And then he only did what he received. So he would only do what he listened and heard the Father saying to do. We already read 519. It says the Son can do nothing by himself. He only does what he sees the Father doing. In John, it also says, I can do nothing on my own. I judge as God tells me to. I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own will. My message is not my own. It comes from God who sent me. All these are out of the book of John. I only say what I have heard from the one who sent me, and he is completely truthful. I do nothing on my own, but I say only what the Father taught me. Jesus was so dependent, so connected. I am telling you what I saw when I was with my Father. At my Father's direction, I have done many good works. My Father who lives in me and does his work through me. Jesus lived by the receive principle. We need it even more. And it's available to us if we'll live as a son. This isn't an event. This isn't a moment. Uh, this is living as a son all the time by receiving from the Father. It's a new way of living. It's basically living with the same type of relationship with Abba Father that Jesus had. That's what he wants us to have. The Bible says Jesus came to show us the Father. He also showed us to have a relationship with the Father. God's a relational God, Father, Son, and Spirit, constantly relating to one another. We need to be relational with the Father. Shift gears, change, reset, get rid of the religion, get rid of the performance, get rid of the judgment, the, the, the did I do good, did I do bad, am I a good Christian, am I a bad Christian? Get rid of the shame. If there's guilt, confess it and be forgiven. Get rid of the lies, the false scripts, the false brands, the false measurements. Go to the source, let him be the real God, and you be who he says, and receive your guidance on how to live from him. Life's a journey. We're receiving, we're becoming, we're transforming. God gives us our identity, he gives us our love, he gives us his pleasure, and he gives us our place, our belonging, our, our, our purpose. Um, there's three big points. This is ongoing fathering. You do not graduate from being a son. 
unlike your human dad, hey, I can't wait to get out of the house and be on my own. This father, we get more and more dependent upon. And that's good news. Secondly, this is dependent receiving. That's the solution to our desperate human condition and imperfection and this modern crisis of manhood. Dependent receiving from the Father. And then constant receiving. This is continual, ongoing. Every morning, it's got to start your day this way. God, I'm your son. Thank you so much. You adopted me. Help me live as a son today. I caught myself playing tennis, 7 a.m. I hadn't had any time even to take my typical two minutes and say, God, I'm your son. Thanks for this day. Guide me. That's at least what I do most days. I hadn't done that. I rolled out of bed, jumped in the car. Stacy and I went to play tennis because it was hot later in the day. And this is our date. We play tennis. And uh, I was not hitting the ball well and starting to get frustrated and hitting harder and harder, not making it very fun for her. And it was like five minutes into this frustrating start to my rotten tennis. And I realized, almost chuckled to myself, Am I playing tennis like a son? No, not at all. And I laughed. I said, God, thanks that I'm your son. Help me play tennis as a son. I calmed down. I felt the settledness come over me. I chuckled. I said, thank you. I was all of a sudden grateful. I thought about, is this fun for my wife? And I started stroking the ball more smoothly, and I started hitting it much better. I was laughing, saying, it's so much better as a son. Silly example. But we need to apply that everywhere. Am I going to work today as a son? Am I talking to my wife as a son? Am I handling the situation with my daughter as a son? Am I looking at our taxes and our finances and my investments or our debt as a son, trusting him? Or is it all on me and I'm kind of panicked? Live as a son. Constant receiving, connecting, listening, and responding. Well, I talked about some good news, this gospel, that we receive the gospel, we don't earn it. Well, we receive our identity, we don't earn it. We receive our manhood, we don't earn it. But remember, the gospel has some bad news before the good news. you got to face reality, and you got to accept and, and realize what the bad news is beforehand. The bad news is, I've separated from God, I've gone my own way, I tried it in my own design, and I cannot do it. And I need the forgiveness of God, the adoption of God, the Spirit of God in me. I need the Word of God, not just a bunch of intellectual stuff and principles. I need God to speak to me. I need Him like to personalize this to me. The bad news is, the camel can't get through the eye of the needle. The good news is, with God all things are possible. You can be adopted, you can be the son, you can live by receiving, and he can be active in your life. He can turn bad situations to good. He can help you succeed without being a prideful idiot, which I've done before. We need to disarm the big lie that's been fooling us. So think about it. What lie has the enemy planted in you that's created a false narrative that you've been living off that you kind of have to do it yourself or you could do it better than God? Or you need to do this to measure up as a man. Let God erase and replace that lie. Dallas Willard said, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Put effort into being refathered. Put effort into asking God to speak to you in the scriptures. Put effort into forming two deep, close, honest, level five friendships. That's not shallow, but deep friendships where you process life, you get honest, you get real, you open up, you ask for prayer, you pray for them, you confess your issues, struggles, 
sins so you can be set free and you have a buddy and a team, get serious. Put some effort into this. Again, God is the one who does it, but you got to be intentional to put yourself in the place of being a receiver with an experience of living as a son. Okay, replace do and replace earn with receive and be. Live from your identity as a son. Our next session is going to be about how do we transform. We don't do it on our own. God transforms us. How do we get transformed by him into an authentic and real man, a benevolent and good man? Let me pray, guys. Father, uh, thank you so much for the amazing, amazing, amazing love that you showed us through Jesus. You adopted us as your sons. We want to live as sons. No matter what we're doing, we want to start our mornings that way and work through the afternoon that way and at night and let you speak to us before we speak. Let you say do something before we do something. Let you say don't do this before we stop ourselves and don't do it. We want to live as sons, help these guys turn their blitzes, which some of them are in, which are quite deep, but they are easy for you to solve if they will surrender their life to you. Bless them. Show them what you think about them and who you really are as a good, good father. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, live by receiving and start each morning as a son.